let me ask you a question. How does your favorite song make you feel? Music affects and changes people's lives. It invokes memories. The first gig you went to, the first record you bought, that song from your school days, or the song you danced to at your wedding, or even your first kiss. It gets you through the worst times and the best of times. Music has always played an important part in my life. First and foremost, I'm a music fan, but I've been lucky enough to have interviewed some of the biggest names in music, combining my career with my passion. Each week, I chat to some of my favorite artists to talk about the tracks of their lives and more. I'm Kylie Olsen, and this is Music and Me. So my first ever guest on the show is a man who without a doubt defined the 80s with his bandmates. Their seminal album Hysteria, which celebrates its 30th anniversary, not only broke records for album sales, but was also groundbreaking for its production values. Now, the first time I heard one of the tracks off that album, which was Pour Some Sugar On Me, I was about, you know, eight years old and I thought it was the best song I'd ever heard because let's face it right if you're a kid and if someone was to pour some sugar on you you'd be in candy crush heaven but it wasn't until I was a bit older that I realized that Joe was singing about something completely different no sugar involved so I am of course talking about Mr. Joe Elliott so Joe what was the first song that you bought wow the first single that I ever bought was sugar sugar by the arches in 1969 (laughs) <laughs> I was well. I was nine years old, and I, you know it was number one in the charts, and I just thought it was a great pop song. Um, first album I ever bought was "Every Picture Tells a Story" by Rod Stewart when I was twelve. So oh, I'd way grown good. up by then. <laughs> that's a good choice for a twelve-year-old. Yeah, well, Maggie May was in the charts, and I had a neighbour, a friend called Nigel. Um, he was three years older than me, but he kind of ad- adopted me as like his young kind of mentor. He was my mentor. I was like his his charge or whatever, and. Uh, he introduced me to all sorts of music. So I was kind of ahead of my time as a 10-year-old. I, I was listening to Aqualung by Jethro Tull and wow. Emerson Lake and Palmer and all this stuff on Island Records that was, you know, just progressive at least, you know, if not prog rock, but um, Spooky Tooth and early Mott the Hoople before they were, a, you know, before they had hits. So, yeah, Roger was my first album. The, the Arches was my first single. <laughs> My first love was T-Rex. Okay. The, the, the first, because, you know, there's, there's a kind of a clause to this answer that um, the first album I ever bought was Rod Stewart, but the first album I ever owned was Electric Warrior, which was T-Rex's breakthrough album, really, with Getting On and Jeepster. Where did that album come from? Who gave it was it a gift. You? It was a present. It was a Christmas present or a birthday present or something from my mum and dad. So they knew how much you loved it. Oh, him. yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause I'd a, by then, I'd had a few T-Rex singles, you know. We used to get an ex-jukebox for 3, three and 11 from the local <laughs> store down the road with the holes cut out the middle. So they were never going round. You had to put these plastic inserts in them, and they was wowing, and, you know. So the, But it was fine, you know. We were kids. We didn't know any better. I know exactly what you're talking about, because I grew up in a pub. So we had loads yep. of those. So I, all my records were, had those big holes you in them. You could get songs that were in the charts six weeks ago for, th- you know, three shillings, whereas a new single cost ten. 
Yeah. Well, we'd probably just moved to 50 pence and 15 pence by then, but yeah. Where did your money come from? Did you get pocket? Paper round. Paper round, okay. Two in the morning and two at night. Wow. So I used to run like crazy to get them both in before school and get two in after school so I could go and play soccer in the park and stuff, you know, and I saved up all my money. Plus, I didn't eat, didn't, I, I used to use my dinner money to buy records. Because dinner money was 12 pence a day, which was 60p a week. And that's how much you needed to buy a single by 1972, 73, when I was, I, by then I was 12 or 13. So I used to go to the chip shop and just ask for a bag of scraps. Yeah. And you get little bits of fish and batter, mm. and that would be my lunch. But I'd go home every Friday with a new Slade single. Yeah. <laughs> and your bag of scraps. Yeah, I love and acne. the track that made you want to be a singer? I don't know if there is one actually. Um, I think just music in general made me want to be a singer. When I was four or five years old, I'm told secondhand by relatives that I was always up on a stool with a plastic guitar trying to mimic the Beatles. You know, um, When I was seven, I used to sing into the vacuum cleaner because it looked like a mic stand, mm. those old stand-up vacuums, which is why we actually mimicked it in a video for a song called Me and My Wine about 30 years ago now um so i was always kind of pretending to be a singer in these uh situations with like vacuum cleaners or plastic guitars and records on i'm told by everyone that the first thing i did when i learned to crawl was crawl towards the radio well there you go you're always destined so I to think, be here i think music was in my dna so it was just generally music in you know i mean i was singing actually wasn't anything i planned to do you know i i Started off with a drum kit and then I had a guitar. My mum taught herself to play and, of course, then I wanted it. And my parents very cleverly said, well, learn to play and we'll get you one. So my mum taught me how to play a few chords on her guitar and then I got my own guitar. And then I started trying to write songs and I wrote a song when I was eight years old um, about a woman leaving me. I don't know where that all came from, but, you know, that's what you did. A woman. And, uh, you know, because all the songs in the charts were all probably about love and, and people leaving them and stuff, you know, and emotions. And I, I kind of, I guess that's registered as well because I don't really do the Dungeons and Dragons lark. Mm. I've always sung about things that people can relate to, like Love and Eight Collide, for example. That would be one where I've had so many people come up and say, that lyric, you might as well have been sat in our house when you wrote it. Because yeah, that's that our relationship. And it's amazing. That's what song storytelling songs is all about. So I was just generally interested in music. It started off on a drum kit and then I went on to guitar. And I just got the, you know, when I got the job in Def Leppard as a singer, it was only because I was, <laughs> I, I was the only person around and I was tall and had a great record collection. I kind of learned to sing as I went along. You know? But it happened. I, there's a lot of stories like that with um, the Stones and stuff, how they met Keith and Richard. Yeah, and um, the U2 uh, were the same thing. They couldn't play an instrument when they got together. Just the idea of being in a band, they didn't know what they were doing. Hmm. I find that they're the most interesting stories because if you're not schooled, you've got to come up with something new. Yeah. And, you know, U2 arguably have totally reinvented the way that you make music. And we totally invented the reinvented the way that the music we grew up listening to sounded we changed we did an add to the pot you know there's there's obvious connections to what we grew up listening to in our music um but i think we did add something to the pot when we came to making our own and can you believe it's 40 years this year isn't it that you've it's been 40 years later this month yeah. that i met rick savage for the first time 
Um, I'd known Pete Willis for quite a while because we had a mutual friend. Um, and so Pete was somebody that kind of came in and out of my life from when I was maybe 15 years old, 16 years old. Um, in parks, park, you know, you just see them in, in these, wherever kids used to hang at a park on a street corner or whatever. And I knew he played guitar because like, that guy over there plays guitar, he's really good, you know. And then two years later, I saw him and bumped into him and I just bought this guitar from a second-hand store in, in Sheffield and I was learning how to play just basic chords electrically. I'd been playing acoustic for eight years, but um, I wanted mm. to try and... The punk thing showed me that anybody can do it, you know. And mm. I saw him one day, I'd, I'd missed the bus coming home from work. And if I'd not missed the bus, it would never have all happened, which is why it's a great sliding doors moment. But um, I was walking up the hill home and he was walking down it and I just, hey, Pete, you play guitar. You fancy getting a band together? Because I've just bought a guitar and, you know, we could see what kind of noise we could make. And he said, well, I'm just kind of putting a band together, actually. So, no, I'll pass. But if you know anybody that can sing, we're looking for a singer. And I just went, I'll do it. And he went, oh, all right, well, you know, he got together and he brought Sav and Tony Kenning to, to my mum and dad's house and we went up to my bedroom and they saw my record collection and how enthusiastic I was and that's the night Def Leppard was born, including the name. Can you, remem yeah. Can you remember what you sang? I didn't sing anything. Didn't sing a thing. I was in the band for six weeks before I even opened my mouth. I got the job. That's why I'm saying it was just the weirdest way. They saw all my records and they did, and we just talked a good game, a lot of us, how we were... We could, you know, we want to make this, we want to do these kind of, and I said, listen to this, and I introduced them to some songs they'd never heard and bands had never heard of. And they were talking about bands. Well, you need to go and listen to this crowd. And I went, what do you mean this? And I had the record, you mm. know, I had a great record collection. And I think they just all looked at it and went, wow, he's keen. And I got the job there and then. They didn't even care if I could sing or not. So do you think that's what it is? Like we say, 40 years on, you're still together, and it's because you actually got on. You were mates. You, yeah, we that's bonded, why you started we bonded over music. Mm. Uh, it wasn't a business thing. It just it was organic. It was the most organic situation I can imagine any band's ever been through. Um, you two may argue that theirs was as organic, mm. and other bands may say the same thing, but I wouldn't know their stories. But for us, absolutely it was. You know, we were six weeks, we were getting together to just talk about how we were going to do it and we were writing songs before we had microphones to sing them into and we tony the drummer found a rehearsal room down the spoon factory down near bramall lane in, and in sheffield and we got this room and we cleared all the dirt and all the machinery out of it and we swept it and we painted the walls and we put posters up on the walls you know and, and middle pages out of sounds magazine that had spreads about certain things. I remember there's a huge poster for the first Peter Gabriel album where he was wearing American football headgear and stuff and, you know, pictures of Kate Bush and all this mad stuff up on the wall. And it was it was a great time, you know. And then we started getting bits of gear and we brought it all in and put carpets down and, you know, there was a sink in the corner and a plug so we could actually boil a kettle and we brought a record player down and it just became like a den. And then bit by bit, we started getting gear, and we started borrowing gear. And then one day, after about five or six weeks, we fired up and we played Suffragette City, which is the first song I ever sang down a microphone.
The first thing we tried to do was Stairway to Heaven, as all bands probably did, but at least we didn't do Smoke on the Water. Yeah. But we tried to do Stairway to I'd listen to the record at home. I didn't really know Led Zeppelin. I wasn't that big a fan of them. I was more into the pop rock stuff like Slade and... and Mot the Hoople. Mot the Hoople, Sweet, you know, T-Rex, Bowie and all that kind of stuff. And I'm listening to this and I'm singing along with the record because you're doing it at home nice and quiet in your front room. You're singing it in the wrong octave. So you're going, there's a lady. When you do that on a microphone, it doesn't come across, you know. Right. And I just remember turning around and Sam was just shaking his head like, nah, that's not going to work. So I tried knocking it up an octave and he went, there you go. So we tried to plow his way through that and it's like, ah, this is not working. Does anybody know um, Suffragette City? And they all went, yeah, pretty much. So said, oh, let's do that. And we did Suffragette City and that was definitely more in my capabilities if you should if I you know for want of a better word I mean I was I was never ever going to be able to sing like Robert Plant um very few can but the Bowie kind of Boland stuff which is more pop orientated and to a point more melodic really because it's got more hooks Zeppelin was ambling blues based rock you know as brilliant as it is but the other stuff was much more structured um and it was it was just more where my DNA was you know What's the one song that reminds you of home? Where's home, though? Do you mean reminds me of early Sheffield or reminds me of where I live now? Where you, when you were a kid. A song that I hear... There are, there's always songs. There isn't, there is, I don't think there's one song. There, there's a bunch of songs in my brain that if I hear them come on the radio or I play them, they instantly take me back to a moment. You know, I'll never forget the first time I got butterflies in my stomach was on a, sat at the back in the, between my mom and my granny in the back of an old crappy Vauxhall Viva or something, driving on holiday to Wales and my dad had the radio on. And it was a song called Even the Good Times, Even the Bad Times Are Good by Marmalade. It was about 1967. Mm. And I remember hearing the call, and I've, I've been out and got it since, and it's, it's kind of a ludicrous song. It's got them giggling and laughing all the way through it, but it, it had such a, infectious kind of happy melody for a seven-year-old kid to to be listening to i remember thinking god this is i I remember feeling like why am i feeling like this it's like it was like hairs on my arm was standing up and stuff it's like it's just a song and then i obviously you realize now it's like there must be some kind of thing in my dna that just when i hear certain kinds of music it just makes me i go into some kind of trance This is Kylie Olsen and you're listening to Music and Me. Coming up, we're going to continue my conversation with Joe Elliott and find out what this is all about. I remember the moment that Bowie played Starman and flopped his arm around Ronson's shoulder and parents were outraged and you're thinking, you've got to be kidding me. get a similar thing when I hear stuff like um, Some of the First Time by Bobby Goldsborough. When I hear that piano run, and the whole story of this 31-year-old woman seducing a 17-year-old boy just blows <laughs> my mind. It's nothing to do with rock and roll. It's an old pop song. But, um, you know, as I got older, I think I listened to things like Get It On 
by T-Rex and I remember taking it to school to play it during the dinner hour on the Wreck record player, you know, and um, all these Slade fans going, take it off, he's a puff. You know, and that kind of rubbish that you had to put up with in 1971, you know. I go, but I like Slade too, but they're going, yeah, but he wears glitter and women's shoes. And I'm thinking, well, you know, that, I like that. You know, and then Bowie comes out with Starman. I remember where I was when, you know, everybody that's, you could talk to whether it be me or the likes of Gary Kemp from Spandau, Morrissey, Boy George, but I mean, other people too, they, they go, they, I remember where I was. I remember the moment that Bowie played Starman and flopped his arm around Ronson's shoulder and parents were outraged and you're thinking, you've got to be kidding me. Mm. That's outrage because he looks like he's put his arm around another man. It's like, ooh. When you're 12, you don't have these post-World War II preconceptions of relationships. You know, just seeing a guy with red hair and a green suit on and mad alien makeup almost. And these great-looking guys in silver... Span, you know, Lame suits or gold Lame suits. Trevor Boulder with the sideburns that hung down to his waist nearly. And this song, Starman, it was just mind-blowingly different to all the crap that was on top of the pops. So I kind of remember being in my mom and dad's room with the TV. We'd only had a colour telly for a little while. So again, kids these days will just take that for granted. But when you've gone from black and white to colour, it's an enormous visual feast for the brain, especially when you're 12. Yeah. 13 years old, you know, so Starman would take me right back to Crooks Road in Sheffield where I was born and I, all my musical memories are in that bedroom, you know. There's a Starman waiting in the sky He'd like to come and meet us But he thinks he'd blow our minds My first ever gig was T-Rex in 1971. I still, still to this day can't figure out how my parents let me go as an 11-year-old kid. Were you 11? Did. Yeah, that's yeah. quite young, isn't it? And you went on your own? Yeah, I was 11 or 12, and they dropped me on the steps, and I went in and went through the swing doors at the Sheffield City Hall, and he just... I missed the first, like, one minute of the set, and he was on stage already, and the crowd were going completely mad, and I'm just looking at this light rig and this guy, and it's like, I've only ever seen him on telly close up, and he's now... He's just this tiny little figure miles away, so I thought until I stood where he was nine years later when we played there and realized, I looked back at where I was when I watched Mark Boland and I went, I could spit that far. <laughs> you know what I mean? But that was an amazing moment to stand on mm. the stage of the City Hall and look at the ghost of the 11-year-old, 12-year-old me at the same doorway and go, wow, I'm here where he was, you know? How crazy is this? You must have lots of those moments, though, when you... I mean, especially that, that moment especially, but, you know, some of the places that you've played at, it's just incredible, isn't it? And, you, you know, you are still here 40 years doing exactly what you do. I was well, in Nashville with you, and that gig was massive. You yeah, were incredible. The, a lot of the venues that we play, some of my heroes never got to play those venues because yeah. they weren't that popular. So that in itself is something that I'd never take for granted and, and put on the spot like I am now is a mind-blowing situation. Mark the Hoople very rarely ever played gigs that big. Bowie did. Mark Boland did Empire Pool, as it was called back in the day, but most of the time he was in city halls, mm. you know, playing in front of three, 4,000 people. Bowie's live album, I couldn't believe it. Tower Theatre, Philadelphia, written on the back, and then we got to play there as an opening act for Judas Priest, and I went, this is where David Live was recorded? Mm -hmm. It was just a theatre with a balcony. 
Yeah. You know, it's like smaller than Hammersmith. And I'm thinking he was playing like the equivalent of Madison Square Gardens or, you know, the O2 Arena in London. And no, nah, right. that was the big gigs didn't really come along for most artists so much later on in life. Yeah. There was a few people that could pull it off, like maybe McCartney, Elton John and all that lot. But we had all the big artists coming to the Sheffield City Hall because it was the only place to play and it only holds 2,200 people. Mm. But Elton John played there in 1976. You know, I mean, it was like three quid a ticket. Yeah. <laughs> Status quo played there. Lizzie played their entire career at the Sheffield City Hall. Yeah. You know. Well, so the Hysteria album is 30. That album nearly never got made in a way. It took, what, four years to make. Stupid amount of money it cost you. All the things that happened, Rick's accident, you got, you were sick, I think, at the time as well for a bit. It just never nearly happened. When it, when it, When you finally finished making it, did you... Were you worried about, sh you know, getting it out there and people listening to it? Did you think, oh, my goodness, if this is a flop, we are finished? Um, I'm sure that probably did pass through our subconscious at some point. Uh, we, I don't remember. It's that yeah. long ago. But it didn't take four years to make. It was, it was four years since, four and a half years since Pyromania yeah. was released when it finally came out. But we didn't actually, we toured Pyromania for a year. We didn't start recording it for nearly... It must have been 18 months after Pyromania was, you know, was finished. We started writing it in February 84. We didn't start recording it till August 84. The actual record that you hear, we didn't really start recording that until mid-85. Yeah. And it was done by the arse end of 86. And then we spent, much spent a long, long time mixing it. But it didn't come out till August because there was a good four months of prep for artwork and, and getting the press ready and getting everything ready for the, this big massive release in August but the album was was with the record label probably by March or April yeah you know it was a long time labored over but what you hear was the result of about 18 months of some just continuously hilarious experimentation on our part to play with this new digital technology you know we didn't really spend a massive amount of time it's been kind of documented that we'd spend forever doing millions of takes. You do do a lot of takes when you work with Mark Lang. Lang. yeah. You know, Brian Johnson will tell you the same thing. I'm done back in black, you know, and, and Lou Graham would tell you the same thing on Foreign of Four. But a lot of the time we spent going down avenues that were dead ends and coming back mm -hmm. open and having to start again because we weren't happy with the results, but we were happy with trying to do something that nobody else had ever done. And that was the important thing. And, it was just hanging in there and not just bailing and going, oh, let's just make Pyromania 2. It'll be fine. Because that would have been a money, that would have been a money dish. I mean, oh, well, you can go out and tour, you'll make some money, it'd be great. No, we wanted to make a piece of art. We want to make a statement. We wanted to try and make a record that nobody else had ever made. We wanted to make a leap of faith, musically, lyrically, production-wise, in the same vein that, say, now, Night at the Opera was from Sheer Art Attack by Queen. You know, the same band, but wow, what a change. You know, what a, as that was, Sheer Art Attack was a big leap from Queen too. It was a big thing for us to, to do that, to get into the big league and not just make another record that sounds like the one we made before. So, well, I don't think we ever worried about the sales of it because we were too young to even think about that. Yeah. They, they are rules that you apply to stuff now. In the 80s, everything sold. Yeah, so you I mean, you only have to look it. at every band that you ever heard of. Their albums sold two million. Yeah. 
yeah. everybody sold at least two million because that's just the way it was, you know. Rat, Poison, Warrant, Autograph, all these bands that came through in 88, 89 with some two million records because their videos were on MTV. You know, you, you just, we just knew it was a good record and it would do whatever it did. As long as we put the perspiration in because we'd done the inspiration, we would at least give it a chance and we were always prepared to work it. And here we are 30 years later still working it, you know, because it's given us a good life. We owe that record a lot. We've, you know, we have no problem admitting that it's probably the record we're always going to be most known for. Um, if everybody's only got one in their arsenal, it's better than having none at all. But yeah. you can you can apply the same rules to Pink Floyd. They've made some wonderful records. But if you say, just name one, 99% will say Dark Side of the Moon. Beatles, you know, most people would say, say, Sergeant Pepper. Pepper. I mean, yeah. there might be a few that would go Velvet, that would go uh, the White Album, the White Album or they'd go Rubber Soul or, or, or Revolver. Um, you know, with, with U2, they'd say The Joshua Tree, and with Iron Maiden, they'd say Number of the Beast, and with Def Leppard. The majority of people would say Hysteria. I don't find a problem with that. It's not an albatross for me anymore. No. It was for a while. But now I embrace the fact that I'm proud of what we've done because it's remained in the consciousness of the rock public that care for that kind of music. And we, it's, you know, the, the Eagles have got Hotel California and Fleetwood Mac have got Rumours and we've got Hysteria and there's not that kind of anything but a good thing. No, and do you have a, fa a song that, like off the album that you prefer performing? Well, that's like choosing your favourite child, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I can you know? imagine. Sugar's always great. Um, but again, territorially, you play Animal in the UK and the response is insane. Mm. More so than in America. But in Sugar in America would go down probably better than it does in the UK, but they all kind of go down well, really. But Sugar's always fun to do because of the history of the song, how it just, it still gets played now as much as it did when it came out. And that makes you feel like we have our version of Brown Sugar. What are you listening to at the moment? Um, whew, what am I listening to at the moment? Uh, new, new Struts, which okay. is under the radar because nobody else has got it except me. Um, How did you get that? Just, How did you get hold of that? I know people. <laughs> I can imagine you do. Um, in, in fairness, it is out. There's only the one song in it. I think it's already gone onto YouTube. What is the anyway. song that you're listening to? Um, it's called "But One Night Only." What um, do you like about it? It sounds like them. It's, it's, you know, the, the Struts are just a fantastic band. They've got, obviously, a big, a big footprint in Queen. Um, but they've also got the, the balls of a band like Slade. They're, they're just everything a rock band. These great melodies. I love his personality as a singer. He sounds a lot like Freddie Mercury. I don't see anything wrong in that. Um, I think they're a great band. I love listening to them. Foo Fighters could never do a put a foot wrong for me. Yeah. I think they're absolutely stunning. Um, but at the same time, I also listen to the, the sensational Alex Harvey band. They're just, just one of them go-to bands like Mott are and Bowie. Black Star, I'm still playing a lot because it's a great record, Bowie's last album. Um, yeah, that is a brilliant, brilliant and album. And I just got Return to Omidorn by Mike Oldfield. 
Okay. Just for, you know, because I like, sometimes I just like to listen to something that doesn't have any lyrics and just slip under the water in the bath and hopefully not drown. (laughs) (laughs) Talking of drowning, what is the song that you would like played at your funeral? Ooh, well, I've already written that into my will that um, I want um, Anthem by um, the Sensational Alex Harvey Band. All the Young Dudes, of course, by yeah. Mott the Hoople, and probably Rest in Peace by Mott the Hoople, which is a, just a, an obvious choice, but it's just a great song, you know. Um, I might even record my own version and get them to play me doing it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a you great know. idea. Why don't you do that? Yeah, just plan your own funeral, yeah. you know. Um, One last word. But, I, you know, it, it's been overdone to play things. Oh, we'll have Monty Python's Always Look on the Bright Side of Life because it's been done. But, you know, I will probably throw in some ironic song that will make the ones that are sniffling burst into laughter. Yeah. I've got to throw something mad in there. I don't know what it is yet, but dudes and uh, anthem, because they're, they're grand and they sound like, well, dudes doesn't sound like a death march, but... Anthem by by the Sensational Alex Harvey Band has got the drum roll and the piano and then the bagpipes come in and take it out. Mm. It's almost like a New Year's Eve song. It's very Scottish, you know. And it sounds like a great song to see my ashes blow off into the distance. Hopefully in quite a few years' time. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, Mr Joe Elliott, thank you very much. My pleasure. that was music and me big thanks to my guest joe elliott wasn't he great absolutely love chatting to him now if you love the show then make sure you subscribe and tell your mates about it as well and if you have any suggestions on who you think i should get on next time then please let me know i want to hear from you get in touch on twitter and instagram at kylie olsen music and me is produced by the podcast works and one some media